0: Welcome to the Data Leadership Lessons Podcast. I'm your host, Anthony J. Algman. Data is everywhere in our businesses, and it takes leadership to make the most of it. We bring you the people, stories, and lessons to help you become a data leader. We've partnered with Dataversity to provide listeners with 20% off your first training center purchase with promo code AlgmanDL. Go to dataleadershiptraining.com to learn more. Today on episode 75, we welcome Bruno Pechets. Bruno helps business leaders innovate profitably is one of the rare innovators who can claim that he has worked on regulation-defying freight train and an award-winning board game for teaching entrepreneurship and innovation. Bruno, welcome to the show. Anthony, so happy to be here. So am I. All right. We had a couple technical difficulties, but we are now going. So uh, hopefully those uh, are, are permanently resolved. But let's kick things off. Just take a few minutes and tell us a bit more about your career and how your earlier experiences have led up to
1: doing what you're doing now. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, I'll try to keep this uh, brief. So what, what I like to say is that I'm one of those lucky people that knew what I want to do ever since they were, you know, a little kid. So my parents told me well, while I was six years old that I was, you know, drawing robots and assembling them and and talking to everybody about that. And that is how I ended up studying engineering and starting also a career well in defense and manufacturing. So I got, it's not a scholarship, but rather a project from Toyota, where they introduced me to Toyota's way of uh, innovation and value creation. And uh, I have to be honest, I expected to be working on some cars. But the first task I worked on was actually improving a toilet. So that's not something Mm. you you expect as an engineering student (laughs) being selected by Toyota. So so that was, you know, it was quite an exciting start of, of let's say, career or journey. And uh, where I went from then, even though I started as an engineer, I had one really large project that was basically the customer asked for impossible, physically impossible, Mm. what they believed was impossible. And I was working with a group of young engineers, me being one of them. And we took that rather personally, what we managed is actually to create this thing, this product, but the customer did not believe us because they themselves thought it was impossible. And what Uh that taught me or what reflection I had after that is like, okay, if we did everything right, why wasn't this successful? And that was now more than 10 years ago. Uh, After that, I ended up you know, traveling the world working in different industries with different companies, etc, in pursuit of understanding, okay, if innovation isn't just about technical things, what is that human side of innovation, Mm -hmm. and we could say the same about data decision making anything, because it's us humans that implement and execute things. So no matter how good you know technology we have, no matter how good methods we have, if there aren't the right people and the right mindsets, it's difficult to execute on anything. And I'll just stop here. I think that's high level. <laughs> so, so what what is your
0: career today? What are you doing today mm. uh, in your in your day to day existence?
1: Mm. So. What I'm specializing today is I basically, uh, as you said in the beginning, help business leaders innovate profitably. And by that, what I mean, I usually work with business leaders on helping them either introduce new products and services or come up with new ways to reuse what they have to generate additional value for their customers, but also themselves. Because innovation is, you know, Anthony, one of those words, you ask 10 people what it means you're gonna get 20 definitions. So at least for me, innovation Mm -hmm. is about value creation. It has to be something new and it has to generate value to both the customer, but also the organization, because that is kind of the thing we shouldn't be be saying, but it's often forgotten. I mean, what does it matter if you go out of business? Doesn't matter if you had the best innovative idea, if you don't have a business next month or next year to continue delivering that idea. And that is something, you know, that just didn't make a lot of sense to me because today more than 17% of companies are still failing with their innovations, new product development, new process development, new business model development, etc., but the root causes are very well known. So again, back to my 10-year-old question: Is like why, if if we know all the technical steps, why is the rate of failure still so high? And it's humans. So. Oh, uh, I love this topic. <laughs> <laughs> I love this topic. This is
0: going to be so much fun. So yeah. so. I have so many questions. So the, uh, the first thing I want to ask you is, is so what is the relationship as you were talking about innovation? I'm like, is innovation opposed to operations or is it connect? Like what is that relationship between innovation and operations? I'm reminded of a thing that I I, I recall hearing in my, uh, when I was studying for my MBA and, and, and it was, you know, we were we were doing this was a class like on an innovation they said you know with with enough analysis every new idea sounds bad like you mm-hmm. can always point to data that shows that this idea is not going to work this innovation this opportunity isn't worth doing because i mean there's there's no real data on what happens if you do it because that's what the whole point is so mm-hmm. It gets me thinking that when you think about like operational enhancements or the the kind of operating of business, like you just said, there's the need to deliver actual business results. And it almost sounds like on the surface, innovating is in the at least day to day context opposed to operational efficiencies even though I suspect that can't actually be the case. Can you talk about that and those relationships?
1: <laughs> I, I'd love to. And it's actually uh, my, my state or, or my position on that is very close to what you said at the very end. It doesn't make sense that these two are opposed. Mm-hmm. So I actually mm-hmm. did study a lot of Toyota production system, lean manufacturing, operational uh, excellence, operational efficiency, et cetera. And it just never made sense to me that to oppose continuous improvement or operations versus innovation. It, it just doesn't make sense. It is trying to turn business into extremely discretionary entity. And that's just not reality. When when you treat innovation and operations as two separate and distinct entities, what you're creating in your organization is unhealthy competition, in which innovation is always going to lose. That by itself is not always bad because a lot of innovation activities lead to destruction of value. <laughs> so that, that is a bit counterintuitive mm-hmm. thing, healthier way to think about yeah. relationship between operation and innovation is like this. What I like to say is, if you wake up one day and decide you want to deadlift, I don't know, 500 pounds, You cannot just go to the gym and do that. You'll probably herniate discs or hurt yourself very badly. You need to go to the gym and you need to work out, you know, every day or every second day. You need to have specific diet. You need to have specific exercise regimen, etc. And then depending on your physical attributes, you will get to there maybe someday. How fast? It all depends on a number of factors. The same is between operations and innovation. If you don't continuously do small things, small improvements, it doesn't need to be breakthrough innovation. It doesn't need to be disruptive, radical out of this world, but small things a little, bit yesterday, a little bit better than yesterday. What you're doing is you're developing the muscle needed for actual innovation opportunities once they come. That to me is the healthiest relationship. Again, if you look all the way back to Toyota production system, mm-hmm. And if we have to go into their terminology, today Kaizen approach is very well known. It's their approach to continuous improvement. What's not so often spoken about was their approach to Kaikaku, which was kind of breakthrough improvement. So from the very beginning, they had both. You had this continuous improvement rolling up and then the breakthrough, big jumps, big jumps, big jumps. So to me, this is symbiotic relationship. It's mutually reinforcing. Unfortunately, when we have different boxing organizations that politically start competing, then is that is when we don't have them dysfunctional functional relationships anymore. Now, I just want to briefly touch about why I said that innovation often leads to value destruction. And you did say something like if any idea is analyzed long enough, <laughs> we will find plenty of reasons why not to do this. And this is where a balance needs to be struck. Too much analysis of any idea is a waste of time by itself, unless this was an idea of, I don't know, thousand million dollars and you would waste all of that money. In that case, it was worth the analysis. What is more important is to have strategy as a set of filters. So instead of over analyzing every idea, your first question should be, okay, how is this aligned with our business or where we want to take our business? If it's not aligned with that, it doesn't make sense to analyze it at all. It might be a good idea, but not a good idea for us. So there's always this matter of fit between the organization and the idea. And then the best approach is to gradually increase the detail of analysis and match the detail of analysis to amount of investment in an idea. So if you and I, Anthony, have an idea to paint some walls so it's a better atmosphere here and, and we rest faster, and if that requires us a thousand bucks, that shouldn't have the same approach as looking into how to develop a new electric vehicle, for example, which is something completely different, completely different level of investment. And especially when we talk about innovations, it's, it's a continuum. It's, not, it's either innovative or it isn't. There's a continuum of innovations, which I like to describe like this, the, the sim the, the closer it is to what you're doing today, and the customers you're serving today, the less risky the innovation is, the less uncertainty there is. Those are the things that I was talking about pumping the muscle, mm-hmm. the workout, you have to do a lot of those things before you think about, hey, let, if we are mm-hmm. a car manufacturer, how about we go into ice creams, That's something completely different. You might say we want to serve ice creams in our cars okay but you never did that before this is extremely uncertain so you need to treat such an idea very differently from hey we want to have a new cup holder in our car i'm just gonna pause here to see how 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 that lands with you and your experience
0: so i i i'm curious as you talk about this and i think it may be related to this notion of overanalyzing decisions because we see patterns with larger enterprises larger organizations struggling to innovate even struggling to compete eventually with some of the upstarts that are are much more innovative um i even think about some of the the organizations that are um you know kind of classically felt as innovative like Apple is a, I think a good example where they they everyone thinks they're super innovative but you look at like the last 10 years and you're like actually they're very iterative they've actually been continuous improvement more than they have been wildly innovative they they kind of perfect things that exist in the marketplace. They take largely a fast follower strategy much of the time. So though people have this impression of them being innovative, they're they are much more, I think, akin to what Toyota was and is in the, the automotive industry is that they're taking what is good and they're constantly making it better. And that gets them quite far down the line. But it gets me to the, to the fundamental question that I have is why are large organizations seemingly so ill-equipped to innovate when they have so many resources that the smaller upstart organizations don't tend to have. Um, what What do you
1: observe with that? Why is it so difficult?
0: Mm-mm.
1: So wh- one thing is there's no internal infrastructure to actually support someone who has an idea. So let's say that you mm-hmm. work in a specific division or not even division, let's say section. So you have your section head, who then reports to the vision head, who reports to hopefully business unit head, who reports to the group head. So if you have an idea, you need to go and pitch it to your boss. Then it's, it needs to align with your boss's idea. Then if he likes it, he needs to pitch it to his boss and then he to his boss. So you kind of right. we have this massive cascade. And the thing is with working with ideas is very difficult. One of the reasons being that we are imperfect communicators. So if I have a a brilliant idea, I'll only be able to communicate a part of it to you, Anthony, not all of it. And what I will most likely, if I'm good at what I do, I will probably be focused much more on on moving you emotionally and not necessarily trying to, you know, put in the most rational uh, argument to get the buy-in. So usually the ideas that progress within the organization are from people that are good storytellers, that have this, let's say, social savviness and political savviness. And sometimes it happens that these people don't always have the best ideas. But that's not the point of this discussion. The point is, you asked me, why are they so ill equipped when they have such massive resources, because they don't have in lack of better words, internal career pathways, they don't have points of contact specifically, okay, if I have an idea, what should they do? And even worst, worst of all is they actually don't have clearly communicated, usually their internal innovation strategy, or business strategy, kind of, this is the direction we want to go in, this is the type of ideas we want to see, this is what we are ready to do with those ideas. So for example, one organization I work with, uh, we decided to focus on one business unit instead of the whole corporate. So what the top management did is they sat down, they spent three days, and they set down a specific innovation strategy, three pager We're not talking about, you know, over analysis, like you mentioned, it was kind of hey, this is what we know about the business. This is what we know where we want to go. So we want more of this, we want less of that we are in retail banking, we don't want to see any more physical footprint, you know, digital channels, classic stuff happening in the banking right now. But then magic starts to happen, because they have 10,000 employees. And then suddenly, you know, you just get 10% of them to give you ideas. And if those ideas are all what aligned with your strategy you then have a pool of ideas you can work with because working with ideas is a numbers game you cannot expect a single unicorn from a single idea (laughs) you need hundred ideas to maybe get four that 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 will bring you back significant returns so it is a numbers game but it is still a quality game you cannot have shitty hundred ideas and expect four brilliant ones you need to have hundred good ideas to expect four that will give some returns and again companies do have resources but they need to build pathways in the lack of better you know because I, i i don't want to say that they need to build organization because it's not that if you go and try to have chief innovation officer innovation division innovation department innovation won't happen magically suddenly because of that because people that have the best ideas are people doing daily operations, back to our previous comments, and it is the best ideas come from exposure with the customers. So you don't want some elite hit team uh, that's, you know, newly hired to create the future of your organization, because they have no context, no history, no understanding of your business, the best ideas will be coming from the front lines, and it is on them who you need to be focused on to create an easy way for them to give forward an idea, to get funding for that idea, to get that idea in front of the right decision maker without making their job a living hell.
0: <laughs> I, I that that's makes a, a, a ton of sense, and, and you know, I'm I'm curious about the uh the automotive industry right now um and and you have a background uh with toyota and and you obviously do some work in the space still um the we're seeing this move towards electrification and i'm seeing a and i And full disclosure, I am a huge fan of electric vehicles. I have a long uh, driving commute most days. I um, have purchased electric vehicles. I've I've been studying this area, Um, but I'm fascinated because I see this kind of bifurcation of the market and how different organizations are going towards it. You have, you know, Tesla, which was not the first electric vehicle manufacturer in in any kind of uh, scale. That was actually GM probably, I think, can lay claim to to that. Uh, in terms of mass marketing a, a, an electric vehicle, but Tesla made it viable as a business model. It wasn't just a, a, a you know research study, which I think the early GM cars were. So you have Tesla kind of leading the pack on this highly innovative upstart side, where you see um, organizations like Rivian and Lucid. There's a bunch now that are coming out with new cars and new whole organizations tied to electrified vehicles that are software first, car second. Um, and are kind of changing this industry. And now you see the large traditional automakers kind of realizing, uh-oh, we need to do this. It's clear that we're on a path towards electric vehicles as being the standard at some point in the future, and how soon that is is debatable. But every major automaker has said, yes, we need to be in the electrification game. Otherwise, this is like being in the horse and buggy game after automobiles were invented. We see that. We, we know that that's happening. Well, what fascinates me, and I'm curious your thoughts on this, what fascinates me is that the organizations that are these legacy automakers the traditional um manufacturers they've approached this seemingly by saying you know what we know how to do we know how to build cars we know how to build good cars we know how to build reliable stable you know cars at scale we can build millions of them what they're not various good with is software they don't know how to do all these crazy innovative software driven things that they have uh that they're seeing in their competitors and so they're the way they're addressing this competition is by building a better car and then trying to solve for software second and it makes me wonder are they doing the right thing here or are they going down a, a dangerous path and is there precedent for this kind of bifurcation of a highly changing market and what the you know should the traditional automakers be trying to emulate what these upstarts are doing using their vast resources or should they be doing kind of what they're doing which is leaning into their strengths in building cars the best way they can that happen to be driven by electric powertrains but aren't fundamentally different vehicles um compared to what they've
1: built in the past so so what are your thoughts on this i'm really curious so i'm going to make a parallel that maybe won't make sense in the beginning. Uh, this is very similar to what is happening with the cow and the hamburger so we yeah. are seeing in, in the last 10 years we are seeing more and more meat replacements and in the beginning they were as you described they were primarily lab reports but now we see more and more businesses coming out that are based around meat replacements uh, serving different patties uh, series um, Uh, wieners, sausages, etc, etc, etc. What they're competing against is an industry that has perfected how to use every ounce of a cow. How to process all of it. Uh, A raw patty is incredibly low cost. The operational efficiency is at the highest it has ever been in the history of mankind. We make sure to get everything from one animal. The same thing is in the electric vehicle industry, we have a traditional competitor who has learned how to make the best cars they can make at the lowest cost for them, sell it for the maximum price they can to the customer, uh, they have a century old business model revolving around using dealerships, using specific relationships, selling, sometimes selling at a loss, but paying that back to specific networks, etc, etc, etc. Well, the thing is, just like those using meat replacements, they're not really competing, you're buying another burger, those most successful ones are competing on completely different set of value propositions. It's a lifestyle change, it's a part of your uh, social status, it's a part of your your values, etc, etc, etc. So you're making a statement by buying such products you don't necessarily buy them because they're the cheapest and you don't necessarily buy them because they're the tastiest the taste has been improving but you know compared to to the real thing it's not there yet the same thing is here so we have electrical vehicles that are getting better and better but the customers going and buying the electrical vehicle are doing it for a number of reasons that often don't have to do so much with I bought the best car I could have in this market for the amount of money I could have. How can these electric vehicle companies survive on that is because they are competing in fundamentally different business model than traditional car manufacturers. So as I told you, traditional car manufacturers are still in this dealership model. Uh, They're not so often in direct sales. Toyota does have branches of direct sales, but I think in USA, they're still primarily relying on dealerships. So there's a whole network of connect connections, deeply rooted, rooted relationships, commissions, etc, etc, etc. While Tesla Rivian and all the other upstarts now coming in the wake of Tesla, they realized car is just a vehicle and here not in a in a driving vehicle, but a vehicle for collecting massive amounts of data that we can monetize. Mm-hmm. insurance data, safety data, traveling data, sell that back to, to alphabet for mapping software, etc. Uh, we can sell you something that others never could because of software improvements, your car is going to be more and more efficient. So kind of, you know, you see people are getting used to iterative software, why not have it in the car, so kind of completely different set of value propositions mm-hmm. that resonate completely differently from traditional car manufacturers. And I mentioned, uh, going back to what you asked me, why don't larger companies innovate? And I told you infrastructure. Tesla did the same before they actually reached profitability mm-hmm. and scale. They started with infrastructure, with charging stations. So a lot of charging stations in the places where they believed there would be a lot of traffic or where customers would be, because they knew there's no existing infrastructure. If you just sell the cars, people will be eventually you know, calling it a gimmick. So they had to break this ice and make Mm -hmm. sure there are charging stations there so i live in norway norway is the second largest electric vehicle market in the world and that is because there is a huge infrastructure here so i live in oslo capital of norway Mm -hmm. you can park almost anywhere and start charging your car then that also incentivizes other car manufacturers to start offering that and then you know you, you have the whole chain reaction The big question is what should traditional car manufacturers do i don't think the answer is that they should just copy electrical vehicle manufacturers because as i said it is very different business model it's up on both sides to figure out okay a car as a car as a future of mobility what role will it play for humanity Mm -hmm. those that can answer that question they have much better chance that actually will staying alive and monetizing, monetizing that in the future. I'll pause here for a moment to to take a sip of water.
0: So you touched on one thing that I think is extremely important that I I, want to emphasize, and that is the, the upstart kind of Tesla and, and company, Tesla and friends will, um, you know, they are so focused. And it's not just on the software that you're giving to the users, to the people driving these automobiles, but it's that collection of data that they are being very careful and and, and thorough about that is behind the scenes. The, the, the user's probably not even thinking that much about it, but it's that kind of thing where you, you think, oh, wow, Tesla's been collecting this data, driving habits, road mappings. How do we interact in these kinds of situations? Like that's where... It's not a simple, you know, 10 years worth of data on millions of cars Mm. at a granularity that no one in history has ever captured before is an enormous competitive advantage over the traditional automakers who I question even today, if they are fully realizing the importance of that data collection function for the future innovation opportunities that they may have is, mm. is would you agree with that statement? Do you, do you observe that that may be the case, that they're focused on what is the product we're creating versus what is this ecosystem that we're trying to develop?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's like they're playing two very different games. And uh, that is that is apparent. Mm. Should they be playing the same game? Well, that's a question for every company. That to me is a strategic question. Which every company should answer for themselves. But it's absolutely true what, what you're saying. Uh, people sometimes do get confused, and they think Tesla and Rivian, etc., they're in the business of making cars. They're not. It's just like uh, Google is not in or Alphabet now. is not in the business of making uh, YouTube or making uh, internet browser or making uh, Android operating system. All of that for them is a channel. to to provide more ads. Mm. That is their main revenue stream. So everything they do, they do it as a sort of a channel, even their autonomous vehicle, they they don't want to enter a business of selling autonomous vehicles. They want you in autonomous vehicle because they know that in that time span, if they can serve you that and that number of ads, that and that number will convert and that and that number will catching in their pocket. So they're playing the ad game in multiple different channels. I cannot tell you what game is Tesla exactly playing. To be honest, I don't think Elon Musk's even knows it. I think a lot of things they do is fueled by, by his interest and kind of, you know, what, what, uh, what draws his attention. But the fact is that they have been collecting a lot of stuff that will be much easier to monetize than traditional car manufacturers who are focused on their uh, optimized business and they want to mm-hmm. keep it optimized. But they will need to challenge the status quo, and you cannot do that from the position of staying optimized.
0: One one other challenge, not to get too far off topic, but I think it's relevant to the conversation, is that the traditional automakers have typically developed their cars using thousands of suppliers. and And with the supply chain issues that we're seeing coming out of the pandemic, it's a real challenge for these automakers to start sourcing different kinds of parts. Think about when you have that many suppliers, how many of them are specifically involved in creating components for internal combustion vehicles? I would imagine probably at least half, right? Like there's going to be a lot that don't really have a place in the future with electrified vehicles, because those engines are much simpler. Those motors, I guess, they are not even engines, but the, the motors are mechanically much simpler so there's need for fewer parts which means need for fewer suppliers unwinding some of that and refactoring some of that has to be a difficult business uh challenge as well especially when you're in this you know kind of cash cow state of internal combustion where you're not going to turn off the you know motor or the the um internal combustion engine vehicles in favor of going a hundred percent electric um but it's going to be continually disruptive. And over time, it's going to be less and less profitable because more and more folks are presumably going to go um, to uh, to electrified vehicles themselves. Do you do you see a parallel in any other industries that have had this kind of complexity around supply chain issues Tied to the larger organizations, the more historical organizations where the switching costs and the the cost of innovation actually becomes much higher because of those business relationships. Can you mm-hmm. think of any other examples where this kind of pattern is played out yeah. before? Yeah.
1: So what uh, what everybody can probably resonate that is from uh, a smaller place, not from necessarily a capital is whenever in their area uh, there was a big player that left for whatever reason. And usually there would be an array of small businesses, family businesses that were all all about serving the big player in the area. And when they would leave, eventually all these small businesses mm. would die out. It would be the children or the grandchildren that would pick up something else and possibly migrate from, from the place. And this is something similar. So you have smaller places that are all about creating specific type of part, uh, When that part is not needed anymore, they will be challenged to either reuse their skills and capabilities to start creating something similar, ideally for them, and serve that to specific other industry, or they will have to go out of business. It's been happening all the time, and if you think about even the gold rush, it's probably the thing. When there was a gold rush, it it wasn't people that were coming and, and trying to find gold that profited. It was people with shovels and pickaxes. When the gold rush stopped those shops stopped as well a lot of cities just disappeared i mean cities They were towns or, or not even towns villages and they, they were just disappear overnight as they were made what what we are better off today hopefully i hope so is access to information is so much easier so what i usually say to companies that are looking starting from the position of hey Bruno this is what we know how to do we are really good at that what else could we be doing that's that position you need to take stock of everything you know and then you need to try to figure out okay what other things could we be making what I like to equate that is you going to the fridge opening the fridge seeing what you have and figuring out the dish you're going to make sometimes it's obvious sometimes it isn't for example uh, there was a what, what was the English uh, pipe manufacturer, they were doing actually pipes for automotive industry that was cut to, to the mansion, you know, it, it's a very mundane part, but the business was all about that. The thing happened is the, the big car manufacturer in the town moved, they closed the, the plant because car manufacturers have been closing a lot of plants in the last 10 years. So what they did was they analyzed their know-how in creating specific type of pipes, they realized something similar is used in aerospace industry, and uh, they had good, I would say, luck in this case. They had machines that can manufacture to the precise measurements for aerospace industry. So they took the skills, they took their know-how, their references from one industry, and they moved and got a customer in aerospace industry. It's a mundane example, but I like to focus on mundane examples because a lot of Tier 3 and other suppliers are exactly in that. Tier 3 suppliers doesn't deliver the whole engine. Mm -hmm. They deliver a nut.
0: I I like that example, and and it it does get me thinking. I'm like, you know what? Can this be flipped into 180 degrees from being a liability to these traditional automakers to saying, hey, we have this incredible collection of independent businesses that we partner with. And we can put to them. Hey, there's a plan here. We've got to change our fundamental business models. Help us innovate in doing that help, you know, your business continue to thrive, but help us figure out how can you deploy those skills in a place where what you're making today isn't what you need to make tomorrow. But the skills that you have and the knowledge that you have and the people that you have can contribute in a different way in the future. And I think if those traditional automakers figure that out and figure out how to manage those relationships, it could actually become a much bigger benefit than it is today mm-hmm. i think a, a liability because that change isn't happening fast enough and and it's it's difficult to do when the the money keeps coming in in the immediate term and then all of a sudden it becomes it becomes too late and you see that kind of it got me thinking um uh, i i think back to like the old uh, video rental organizations in some ways where you know netflix came along and kind of st- disrupted the industry initially with these dvds by mail and and things like that but then went all in on streaming and that was the final like death knell of that old industry and it still took 10 years to resolve it but that was the moment when they went full into streaming before the technology was even quite ready the impacts that that ended up having in every community that had a standalone video rental store is tremendous because like I can remember now where those stores were in my town where I grew up. And now I think back and I'm like, I remember when they closed and I remember what they became. And I remember this one got torn down or whatever. But that that kind of change, I think if we spend a little bit of time thinking about it, I think that's all around us all the time. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not always headline level, like electric vehicles is something that I think commands a lot of attention. Um, there's a lot of personalities like the Elon Musks and stuff, but I think we see that nature of innovation at varying levels of scale all the time. Mm. And I think that's, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, uh, thing to think about, um, there. So th- I wanted to ask you, cause I know, um, you know, we've talked a lot specifically about like the function that you do, but you have a background as well in doing a lot of martial arts. And I'm just curious how your martial arts training actually influences what you do from an innovation perspective. Cause I imagine there's a connection
1: there too. Yeah. You're, you're imagining correct. <laughs> so, uh, I've, I've been training ever since I was a little kid, I don't know, six, seven, I, I don't remember anymore. And where I use the most my my martial arts approach is in actually coaching. So one of the things I realized the most Mm. when training kids, you know, when, when you're training kids, you need to talk in plain language, you cannot just talk to them, you need to show them, walk them through it, you know, and have a lot of patience, you know, you show them how to roll, you show them three times, then they do it, they fall over, (laughs) kick themselves in the head, start crying, and and, you know, you need to explain it again and again, you you cannot tell to the kid, you know, uh, take 45 degree step backwards, lean down, roll over, Ah, that doesn't work. So what what that did to me was, okay, Mm. I don't want to talk to adults like kids. But the thing is, the simpler we communicate with each other, the more plain language we use, and not just our words, but also show, demonstrate, walk through them, help them experience that, the easier it is for me to do my work. You cannot learn how to throw if you don't learn how to fall. And you cannot learn how to fall unless you fall. And I've seen that the same thing works in business. I am confident in what I do because I did it. I innovated, I invented, I made things that did not exist before. Genuinely, some of them were very successful. Some of them were not successful at all. I was able to learn from that and I was able to improve on that. So then when I walk and I work with other business leaders, I'm speaking from a place of something I have did and I can see what they're doing and immediately correct or advise because it comes from experience and expertise, not just from from the book, or something similar. And another thing that that I find extremely invaluable is discipline. And I would say, you know, that's for every martial artist, you you have this, you need to put in the hours, you need to to repeat the movements for 1000s of times, you will you will understand them intellectually, you know, after three times, but that does not mean you will perform them or implement them. It doesn't matter, like, uh, Tyson and Muhammad Ali and all the things that they were doing as great boxers. Yes, they had a set of moves and you knew what was coming. But just because you knew what was coming doesn't mean that you could take it. That's
0: <laughs> that, right. That's that is, of, that yeah. is very true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it, and, you know, I think that that's a great note to, to end today's show on. I think it's it's been really interesting to, to think about this. Um, Bruno, thank you so much for for being here. Uh, I, I really appreciate it and I'm, I'm glad we've we've made it through without too many technical difficulties and, and I'm glad we'll be able to share this uh, this information and, and your wisdom with with uh, the audience out there
1: so happy to to be here and Anthony, thank you again for a great conversation and, and before before we go what's what's the best way for folks to find you after yeah. the show? okay so first thing Anthony has all my contacts, so Anthony is your guy you can always reach out to him. Uh, second, uh, www.pesec.no. So I make everything available on, on my website. You will find a lot of material, some ebooks, Everything is freely available because I had good fortune of having access to good education. And I promised to myself, you know, what I learned, I will share with others. And I, I stick to that. So that's it. The easiest way to find stuff.
0: Outstanding. Bruno, thank you. And thank you all out there for joining us today. As always, you'll find more information about our guests and links in the show notes. Go to dataleadershiplessons.com to subscribe and check out past episodes and accelerate your journey with training at dataleadershiptraining.com. Stay safe during these unusual times and go make an impact.